0: Well, good morning. I'll invite you again to open in your Bibles to John chapter 14. We'll read in just a moment, beginning at verse 12. If you were not here with us last week, I'm afraid you're coming in at a bit of a disadvantage this morning because we're continuing today something that we started looking at last week. We started to hear with verse 12 and going forward, our Lord giving, you could say, the content of the statement he's about to make in the next chapter. He's going to to tell his disciples in chapter 16, in verse seven, that it is to their advantage that he go away. Even now in this text, he's beginning to describe the nature of that advantage. What is it about his leaving that is good for them? And where we ended last week was in the midst of what he tells them about the coming helper. So he tells them that when he goes, he will ask the Father, when the Father will send another helper to come and to be with them. So he began to speak to them about the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we saw then that the Spirit has indeed been at work in the lives of the disciples prior to Christ's ascension, but that he's telling them about something of a redemptive historical development that's going to take place. When Christ ascends, he and the Father will send the Holy Spirit to live in them, he says. He is now with you. He will be in you. This is what we heard in verse 17. And this is what we pick up this morning. Because there's still a great deal to be said here and for us to understand about what this gift of the Holy Spirit is in the church age here. Um, And so, in fact, all we'll do this morning is to finish talking about that. This was the third piece of good news that Jesus is giving them here about his departure. What we'll do this morning is we will finish hearing that piece of good news. It'll take us through verse 26. And the next time we'll finish out the chapter with two more pieces of good news that we hear concerning his departure. But I'd like us again to hear all of this from verse 12 down to verse 31. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If you're able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? John 14, beginning in verse 12, Jesus says this. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. So that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. The third piece of good news here from our Lord to his disciples who are afraid and are in need of comfort, having just been told that he is leaving them. The third piece of good news he gives is this news of another helper. Another helper is going to come to them. And what he's told them here thus far is that with that helper's presence comes an increased nearness of God's presence with them. We opened the door on that last week, and we continue now coming into verse 18. What he begins to say here is in keeping with the themes that he has already Named The things we've been thinking about here recently. He's telling us more about the increased divine presence that comes to them with the Holy Spirit. When I say more, I mean he actually continues to get even more specific about what this is. We find in verses 18 to 24, this is the first uh, additional detail that we're hearing here about the comfort of the Holy Spirit's presence. We find in verses 18 to 24 that the Holy Spirit mediates the presence of the triune God. This is something that is difficult for us to understand. In a comprehensive way, it's impossible for us to understand. But this is such a significant passage as Jesus begins to explain to us that if the Spirit is with us, the fullness of God is with us. And so this is something we need to understand this morning. You might notice that it seems like he kind of stops talking about the Holy Spirit's presence with them in order to talk about his own presence with them in 18 to 24. Because you see, he moves to, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. It's almost, a, it sounds like he stops talking about the Holy Spirit's coming through verse 24, and then he goes back to talking about the Holy Spirit after that in 25 and following. But what we're going to find this morning is it's not so easy as that, to parse the two out. Now as we begin and looking at verse 18, it is to be sure uh, his concern that he, he is describing his coming to the disciples after his departure. That's what dominates this entire piece. He is telling them in verse 18 that he will come to them after having departed for a time. So verse 18, he says, after having departed, he will come again to them. Verse 19, he says that it will be shortly after his departure. He says in verse 19 that his coming to them it will happen in a way that the world will not see him. Do you hear that? Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. So he is telling them, he is going to come to them in a way that the world will not see him. Verse 22, Judas, not Judas Iscariot, asks a question directly because of that statement. His question is, how is it, Jesus, that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? That's a direct question about verse 19 and the quest, this the description of his coming. Verse 23, Jesus answers that question. So that reaching all the way down into verse 24, the clear question at hand here is what is our Lord speaking to directly when he says that he will come to them in verse 18? What kind of coming to them is he talking about? It's what confuses Judas, it's what's at issue here. So we need to think about this. And in fact, there are a number of possibilities that have been suggested. I'm going to suggest to you that only one of them does justice to the things that he tells them here about this coming. Let's just think of some possibilities. What is he promising when he says that after having departed, he will come to them? Well, one that's been suggested is maybe the resurrection. Maybe he's just describing the resurrection. He's going to leave them in death, but he won't stay away physically. He's going to come to them by being resurrected. Is that what he's pointing to here? If the resurrection is what he's describing, that would explain verse 19's statement that he's going to come to them after only a little while. The resurrection is only three days after the cross. It kind of fits the other statement in verse 19 about the world not seeing him because in general, the resurrected Christ only appeared to his followers or to those who seemed to have become his followers, those who were rescued out of the world by the Lord. So it might fit those things in a way. The problem, though, is that it does not explain any of the other statements that Jesus makes here about this coming to them. In verse 21 and 23, you notice he expands this coming to include all of those who love him and not just those who were alive at the resurrection. He's not describing something different from this promise of coming to them. In verse 21, when he says that he will manifest himself to all those who keep his commandments. And I would just wonder, how can the resurrection describe verse 23's statement? That in this coming will be himself and the Father coming and making their home with the disciples. How does the resurrection explain that? The passage as a whole simply doesn't point to the resurrection. Maybe it describes his second coming. That's another possibility when he promises to come to them, that he's describing what we're still waiting for today, that he's going to come back. We know that day is coming. He will return to judge the living and the dead, as he's promised. That is definitely a moment when verse 23 will be uniquely true, that the Father will come and make his home with them. But there's a big problem with hearing him promising something about the second coming here. Really the problem is the timeline of this. Verse 18's coming of Christ sure seems to refer to something that these 11 will experience in their lifetimes. He says to the 11, I will not leave you as orphans, yet a little while and the world won't see me, but you will see me. This doesn't seem to be a coming that can be explained in some kind of complete way. By thinking of the second coming. Uh, Another possibility is that he's talking in in a very spiritual way. He's talking about their death. When they die, he will take them to be with him where he is. He's already promised them that in this discourse, hasn't he? At their death, they will go and be with God in heaven. However, I don't see how this would make sense of what Jesus is saying here again, because... This clearly, as we've said, seems to refer to something that is experienced in their life there. Something they can wait for, for just a little while. Verse 21, this coming will be experienced by those who have his commandments and keep them. And that's repeated again in verse 23. Each of these possible explanations fit certain pieces of what Jesus has said here. But it does not seem to me that any of them fit well with the general description that Jesus is giving in verses 18 to 24. And what's more, none of them say anything that would account for the pretty mysterious statements he's making here about his presence and the Father's presence together in this. Now there's another possibility. This is the one that, as far as I can see, is is the most common explanation of what Jesus says here, and I think for very good reason. It would be that Jesus is describing when he's promising to come to them and to not leave them as orphans, that he's describing what's going to happen on the day of Pentecost. What's going to happen when the helper is sent to them in exactly the ways that he has been describing here. Now you can see how if that's the case, then he hasn't started to talk about the Holy Spirit's coming Paused to talk about something else, and then pick that back up in verse 25. If that's the case, then all of this is, are pieces of his description of what God is going to do for his people when the Holy Spirit comes to dwell with them. He's telling them that when verse 16 happens, when the, the helper is sent to them, that there is a way in which Jesus' own presence will be coming to them. Now the problem with that is the thing that we're gonna spend quite a bit of time thinking about together this morning. You could say it's the problem of, well how can that make any sense if Jesus is not the Holy Spirit? Jesus is not the Holy Spirit. So how could he be speaking of his coming to them in the coming of the Holy Spirit? Though it winds up being a wrestling with the nature of the relationship between Jesus, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's that relationship that we need to think about together. And my friends, that's by God's design. This is, this is such the point in this text, that God intends that when his people are studying his word and they come to places like this, the thoughts that he would have us dwell on and wrestle with and seek to grow in are thoughts concerning the nature of God. The nature of the relationship between our savior and his spirit, the spirit who is sent. So this is what we'll think about for quite a bit of time this morning. But let's, before we do that, let's do acknowledge the reasons that so many have drawn that conclusion, that Jesus' promise here in verse 18 is fulfilled when the Holy Spirit comes. First, notice that throughout these verses, the unity of the Trinity is being articulated. Do you notice that? What will be known in that day, the day that he's promising to come to them, verse 20, what will be known? that I am in my Father, he says, and you in me, and I in you. So what will be known on that day that Jesus comes to them will be that, notice, that Jesus is in the Father, what he has already been describing. What we've already seen as a mysterious revelation of the nature of the Trinity. What will be known in that day is also that Jesus is then in us. It's the unity of the Trinity and the indwelling presence of God in his people that will be known on that day when Christ, quote, comes to us. Something for us to notice here. Second, this explains exactly what Judas asks in verse 22. His question is, how is it that Jesus could manifest himself to them, and yet not to the world? And Jesus' reply makes it clear that he's describing to them a spiritual coming to them. Third, and this is related to that from verse 23, again, Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Just notice that that's the answer to his question about Jesus is coming to them. If we don't understand it this way, it will sound like Jesus ignores his question and just moves on. Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and to us and not to the world? You have a handout in your bulletin that works to to show a relationship here in some of the things that Jesus has said. It's amazing to me to notice. That's why I put it in there. Maybe it's not amazing to you, but I find this striking the similar language here, to notice how verse 23 is essentially a complete repeat of the single sentence of verses 15 and 16, a sentence that most of our Bibles have decided to break into not just two verses, but two separate sentences, even though verse 16 starts with an and and is clearly continuing in one thought. You can see it there when you compare. Jesus, I think, is being clearer here about what he means by this coming to them then we can give him credit for. In exactly the same ways that he is described, asking the Father and the Father sending a helper to be with them forever, in exactly that way, he says, those who love me and keep my commandments, I and the Father will come and dwell with them, make our home with him. What we're beginning to find is that Jesus is simply getting more specific Into what we said generally last week, that in his bodily departure, that thing he's just told them about that they are terrified to consider, in his bodily departure, the disciples are not going to have a diminished nearness to God. And even in a particular way, they will not have a diminished nearness to him. It is true that they'll see Him again bodily after His death, but only for about 40 days. That's not the coming that He is comforting them with. That would be small comfort if that's all He was pointing to. He's preparing them not for the three days that He is in the tomb and away from them, but for the lifetime that they are going to live without His physical presence. This is what He's preparing them for. So let's state the matter simply. In terms of what we've heard, Jesus is saying that the way that he will come to them, verse 18, the way that he will manifest himself to them, verse 21, the way that he will make his home with them, along with the Father, verse 23, and the way that he will be with them always, the final words of Matthew's gospel, is in the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. I think this is a really good place to hear how it is expressed outside of John's gospel. A great place that Paul makes this distinction plain is in Ephesians chapter 3. You might turn over there for just a moment. Ephesians 3, in particular verses 16 and 17. But first skim verses 14 and 15. Ephesians 3:14 Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. So, he's talking about the Father, isn't he? That's important because he's about to say, He. And we have to know who the He is. He's talking about the Father. 16, That according to the riches of His glory, He, there's the Father, may grant you to be strengthened with power through, what? Through His Spirit in your inner being. The Spirit is very interestingly called there the Father's spirit, just like in other places, he's called the spirit of Christ, such as the unity described in the Bible. This is clearly the Holy Spirit who is indwelling God's people. So verse 16, "You may be strengthened with power through His spirit in your inner being." And then what does he do in verse 17? "So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith." My goodness." And lo and behold, what's the result of all this? That we see in verse 19. The result is, you are filled with all the fullness of God. This is what God is planning for His people. He came and accomplished salvation in the sending of His Son, that those who are sinners and who are separated from Him by their sin might be brought near to Him. And then, when the Son ascends and sends the Spirit, This is brought to its completion. This is why historically the Holy Spirit is spoken of as the perfecter of all of God's works. He who brings the works of God to completion. Because now in Christ we've been brought near and in the Spirit, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit come to be present with us as His children, as His people. And this can be described in such a way that's almost interchangeable It's the spirit of God coming to dwell in us. Jesus Christ, the incarnate one, the God-man, wrapped in humanity, is where right now? He is in exactly one place. He is the God-man. His humanity does not become ubiquitous and now can be in multiple places at once. He is enthroned on high. And yet the eternal son is present with us in the presence of the Holy Spirit. Such is what we've described in the last couple of weeks of the mutual indwelling of the persons of the Godhead. You do not have the Holy Spirit without having the Lord Jesus. You do not have them without having the Father. You do not have the Father without having the Spirit. They are inseparable. Now, it's probably stating the obvious to say that trying to unpack something like that is not a simple task. And it's probably one that we should handle in a bit of a guarded way, because the realities that he is giving us some insight into in places like this can easily overwhelm us if we try to insist upon understanding it at too detailed a level. I would warn against trying to do that. And instead, I would suggest that if, if we, that, that is a missing of the opportunity he's giving us, because if we're willing to be content to receive what he gives us like he gives it to us. That what this becomes for us is something. That only the world's greatest teacher, the one who has seen the Father and has come from the Father and is himself God in the flesh, in a way that only that teacher could accomplish... Pieces of the picture of the Trinity are now falling more steadily upon us and are beginning to fall into place. And This is what he offers to us as he reveals himself in passages like these. For example, this winds up helping us to know how we are self-consciously not worshiping three gods. There are not three gods. There is one God. We worship one God. This winds up helping us to know how we are self-consciously not declaring the Holy Spirit to be one-third of God, but rather the fullness of God. Even as the Son is the fullness of deity dwelling bodily, according to Colossians 2, nine, Even as the Father is the fullness of God. We do not pretend to possess comprehension of these Trinitarian realities, but we do claim though, that this is how the God of the Bible has revealed Himself in His Word. It is not a product of human imagination. And Christ's words here about the Spirit and about Himself and about the Father, this is one such place where our Lord reveals the nature of God to us. This is how our God really is. And therefore, this is how Christ The one, John one eighteen, who has come to explain him, who has come to make him known, this is therefore how he speaks when he reveals the one true God to his people. He tells us here this morning that such is the union of the Son with the Holy Spirit that as Sinclair Ferguson has put it, the coming of the Spirit is equivalent of the indwelling of Jesus so that the giving of the Holy Spirit in this way is the blessing it is because with his coming, just hear this, with his coming to us, the very presence of the triune God is what's being brought to us for how long? To dwell with us forever. Still one more element here this morning concerning the gift of the Holy Spirit we find this in verses 25 and 26, what he specifically tells us about the good news of this coming helper here is that the Holy Spirit is He who brings illumination of God's Word. It's just yet another aspect of why it is good news, disciples, that I'm going to leave, that I might send the Spirit to you. It's because of the unique role of the Holy Spirit in the economy of God's works. Look again at verse 25. Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. It's helpful, I think, for us to hear this promise from Jesus to the disciples as having both a near and a far application. We could put it that way. There is an immediate and near application for these disciples soon to become apostles. These men are soon to be those whom he uses to lay the foundation of the church. That's how their work is described in Ephesians 2.20. The church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. These men have walked with the Lord. They will meet the risen Christ And they will write Holy Scripture under inspiration of this Holy Spirit. And when they do that, the Spirit will do for them what we have heard over and over in John, was always God's plan to have happen. Later, the Holy Spirit was going to bring back to mind all that Jesus has said and would lead them to understand it. By His work of illumination, the lights would come on and they would see the perfect completion of what God has always promised. The near application of this is their work as inspired writers of Holy Scripture. 2 Peter 1.21, Peter says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is promised to them. This will happen of them by the Spirit, and that's because the Spirit has been the one who has always done this. The prophets of old, as they wrote, inspired by, protected, led by God, they were being led along by this Holy Spirit. But if that's a near application of what he's promising here with with this helper and his work, there is also a far application The the Spirit, what we just described of that work, the Spirit's illuminating, guiding work of the apostles in writing Scripture was a profound example of the Spirit's work. But that is not the only work that the Spirit engages in. It's simply the inspiring of the writing of Scripture. The fact is, that is the role that the Spirit always plays regarding men and God, leading us to understand, opening our eyes to see, We were just in Ephesians. I would ask you again uh, to turn, but now to 1 Corinthians, if you would. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, starting at verse 6. I'm going to do something that can sometimes be painful, where I'm going to read a section here that is incredibly rich and has a lot of things in it that we, we ought to talk about. And I'm going to read it so that we can talk about one thing. <laughs> so don't be mad at me, or if you're mad, then forgive me. But if you can stomach it, we will, we will overlook some things here. First so Corinthians 2, I'll read verses 6 to 13. Listen for how the work of the Spirit is described here. Paul writes, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age, who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, What no eye has seen, Nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Verse 10, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. And that's rightly a capital S there. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Do you hear how that speaks about the general experience of imparting spiritual wisdom? Spiritual wisdom is received, it is revealed to us, how, according to verse 10? It's revealed to us through the Spirit. How is it taught to us? Verse 13, by the Spirit. It's the way God always works. It's the way that knowing the mind of God always works. In fact, the church has long confessed that because of the unified essence of God, and therefore, because there is one divine will, the church has long confessed that this is the way that all of God's acts function. We describe it like this, from the Father, th- through the Son, in the Spirit, or by the Spirit. Let me share for just a moment how others have articulated this. I think it's, this is a good opportunity for us simply to become more familiar with the language of the church. The Church, historic. Early 4th century, Athanasius, the Trinity is self-consistent and indivisible in nature and it has one activity. The Father does all things through the Word and in the Holy Spirit. In this way is the unity of the Holy Trinity preserved. Late 4th century, Gregory, all the works of God are, quote, from the Father through the Son to the Spirit. 17th century, John Owen, the Holy Spirit is, quote, the immediate operator of all divine works that outwardly are of God. Early 16th century, John Calvin, the Spirit of God from whom the doctrine of the gospel comes, the Spirit is its only true interpreter to open it up to us. Hence, in judging of it, men's minds must of necessity be in blindness until they are enlightened by the Spirit of God early 21st century, 2017 to be exact. Michael Horton wrote, in the unfolding biblical drama, we encounter the Father as the origin of creation, redemption, and consummation, the Son as the mediator, and the Spirit as the one who brings every work to completion. The Holy Spirit is the one who applies God's works to us. He is the one who brings illumination of what God has revealed. Is this a significant promise for Jesus to tell us when I go to the Father, I will send this helper to dwell with you forever? Do you see why he tells them? It is to your advantage that I go away because if I don't go away, the Holy Spirit will not come to you. We should repeat it like we said last week. Brothers and sisters, we are tremendously blessed To live in this age in which God has so treated us. He has so gifted us. So what we have seen here in all of this, as we've spent the entire morning to the sole end of hearing Jesus finish describing this wonderful gift, this other helper, who both he and the Father have sent to us after he's departed from this world. What we've seen is that if the Spirit is with us, and in us, then my friends, the fullness of God's saving and transforming presence is with us. And we've been reminded this morning of a fact that we need to be very mindful of and forever grateful for. And that is that we live our lives dependent upon the power of God's Spirit at work in us. This is all the reason why we say so often, we are fundamentally an utterly dependent people. We who are rich in Christ are ever needy, ever needing to humbly approach and to live lives of gratitude because everything about our provision, our safety, our joy, our hope has come to us because God has been faithful to his promises to us. This kind of a dependency is going to manifest itself in our lives pretty inevitably in certain ways. Are you in a season right now with a very dry and sparse prayer life? I would suggest that that means that you have forgotten the fact of that utter dependency that we're talking about. And there's encouragement for us when we're in those times, but there's also urgent warnings that are for us when we're in those times of sparse, dry prayer lives. Because God's word tells us to be assured that what we reap, we will sow. God will see to it that you are reminded of your dependency upon him. And the certainty of that, because of his faithfulness to us, really demands that we would labor to keep ourselves sensitive to the fact of our dependency. This is a task that should be on our minds and urgent for us. Are you doing poorly at this season in your life at bearing with the faults of that person near to you? Yes, the one who just came into your mind as soon as I said that. Are you you doing poorly at this season in bearing with the faults of those near to you? One likely reason could be that you have again tripped up on that the oldest of our errors. The error of thinking that you are standing on your own strength. Because if you are, why can't they? My friend, you are not. You're not. You are needy. You are flawed. You are being forgiven daily. You are being born with daily. You are being upheld daily by the work of God's Spirit in your life. The good news is that that God is gentle and patient in what he does in those ways. But listen, more good news is that if we remain cognizant of that reality, we will be far more prone to bear with the faults of those around us. The two simply go together. And this morning, in a passage like has been given to us by our Lord, we are invited to remember that the same power at work in Christ's resurrection from the dead, dead to living, that same power is the power that is at work in our lives as God's children. We know it well from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, that though our outer self is wasting away, Our inner self is being renewed day by day for light momentary affliction, as he describes this life, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. This is the hope. These are the promises that are ours in Christ Jesus because we are secured by the down payment of his spirit living in us and working in us. And so we can see why our Lord, in comforting those who are so distressed in that moment, why he would tell them more about this gift of the Spirit that is to be sent to them. And that, my friends, if you know the Lord Jesus, if you have repented of sin and leaned upon him entirely for life, it's a gift that is yours today. And for that, we rejoice. Let's pray together. Father, it may be true, certainly it is in many in many seasons that we can fix our eyes, even because of the way you have spoken to us in the New Testament, we can sometimes fix our eyes on the goodness of the Father, the work of the Father, the goodness of the Son, the work of the Son. But can fail to appreciate the triune way that you have come to us and revealed yourself to us, and therefore the triune way that you always work in us and for us. Thank you, Lord, for this very specific reminder this morning from your Son of the gift that is ours because of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And God, we pray to that end that he would indeed bring his fruit to bear in our lives. Lord, increase our joy by making us a joy to those around us, by being self-sacrificial, laying down our lives in love as we follow the example of our Lord who showed us what love is by laying down his life for us. We thank you for him this morning. We pray all this in his name. Amen. There's another element in even what we have heard this